Hello and welcome to Casual Krakoa. Hey everybody, I'm Dave Busing, founder and editor-in-chief of ComicBookHerald.com. You are listening to Comic Book Herald's Casual Krakoa. Today we're going to be talking about all the X-Men comics that came out today, including Sabretooth number one, the excellent number one, and of course, X-Lives of Wolverine number two. If you're here with me live, first off, thanks for joining. Let me know if you can hear and see everything okay in the comments. And also, as I'm going today and talking about the day's X-Men comics and what's good, we will be taking some questions. So get in any questions that you have. I will address as many as I can. The Super Chat is open and available. If you'd like to show your support for Comic Book Herald, that is greatly appreciated. I will look to answer those questions and prioritize there. Today was a sneaky good day for X-Men comics. Uh, it was actually, I mean, honestly, like, it was the most I've anticipated a series in a good long while because I have a lot of confidence and have expressed a lot of confidence in author Victor Laval coming in and writing uh, his first Marvel Comics work. He has done comics before, if you have read Victor Laval's The Destroyer, which is quite good, and I interviewed him about that on CBH in the past. But Sabretooth uh, was was an exciting launch, and we're going to talk about that first issue because it is a hell of a first issue. It did not disappoint at all, honestly. And I said this on Twitter a little bit earlier. I think Sabretooth number one is the most hyped, the most impressed I've been since a launch or for a launch launch issue since Sword number one, way back in I think December twenty twenty, with Al Ewing and and crew on Sword number one. It is the most. It has a lot of similar DNA as well, right? Following up on a House of X and Powers of Ten mystery, seeded by Jonathan Hickman, and and doing that in its own way with a clear POV, with a clear statement about what this comic is going to be and what it represents. It was exciting stuff. It's exciting stuff. So we're going to talk about that issue in detail. Uh, but first, we definitely got to talk about the big event comic of the day, which is X Lives of Wolverine number two. So we are now in week three of the X Lives and X Deaths of Wolverine sequence, and um, I was obviously more down on X-Lives number one, the first issue of this, than X2, right? I, I had, a, then Death's one. I had a big flip, I think, in my, you know, appraisal of the event. Number one, I was pretty down on. I didn't feel like it declared its mission statement. To me, it wasn't really making it clear why this event needed to happen. Death's uh, it really course-corrected that, you know, Deaths is a Moira story, more or less, with some Wolverine, you know, side flavor, right? A little Wolverine spice on the side action. X-Lives takes us back to what is going to be, or what appears to be the sequence of Wolverine traveling through time. And he's traveling through time to his past lives, all his past lives, trying to protect his mentor, Professor Charles Xavier, okay? So we have the 10 lives of Wolverine, which have not all been decided or declared in tremendous detail, but we have here uh, lives one, which is basically young teenage Wolverine, very recently out of his origins phase, back when he was a wealthy, young, uh, sickly Canadian boy and then developed his mutant ability and kind of goes off into the woods. We have him here as teenage Wolverine. He, they, they go full lost on us with uh, Wolverine fighting a chained polar bear in 1900 Canada. We also get Logan VII, Logan 7, right, with the Roman numerals, uh, where he's with Team X. You know, so the, the Team X CIA days. Um, and then we're kind of bouncing through time, right? We get a Logan 5. We get we get some Logan stuff. I liked, in this issue, I liked in X-Lives of Wolverine number 2. Okay, this is going to be the Wolverine time travel story. This is going to be the Wolverine 
goes back to protect Professor X time shenanigans stuff, that Terminator-esque kind of appeal. If we're going to do that, let's do it, right? And I think X-Lives Wolverine number two really leans into that today because it just full Billy Pilgrim unstuck in times us, right? It just, and that's a, that's a Slaughterhouse Five. Kurt Vonnegut reference, right? It just fully goes, okay, Wolverine is unstuck in time. So is this narrative, right? So is this narrative. We are hopping here sequentially, page by page, pretty much through all these different eras of Wolverine's timeline, you know? So we're hopping through the Wolverine verse. We're hopping through his chronological history and figuring out and seeing all these different sort of visuals about Wolverine was up to as his consciousness from present day, as his consciousness from present day Krakoa goes back and has to protect Professor Charles Xavier, but also like the uh, friends and family of Professor X, right? He is protecting the lineage of Professor X. You know, I see here in the chat, somebody saying, how old is Professor X? Yeah, Professor X wasn't alive in 1900 Canada, but his ancestors are, okay? And I think that is what the sequence is telling us as well, is that because Wolverine is hundreds and hundreds of years, not hundreds and hundreds, right? He's he's old, <laughs> is the point. He's gonna have to go back and protect Professor X's ancestors to ensure the Xavier lineage is maintained to protect Krakoa. So again, like there's there's a lot here that X Lives is doing that again on a conceptual interest level is pretty good. Um, there there's talk there's talk here because this is Benjamin Percy writing and because he's been writing X Force. You know, X Force one of the things they are aware of, one of the things they are monitoring. We see Sage talking about this in her logbooks is protecting the time stream right? Protecting timeline terrorism, as they call it, where individuals against Krakoa's nation state could go back in time and blow it up, you know, figuratively, but maybe also literally, so that Krakoa never happens, right? So that is the thing they have to protect. This is the Marvel Universe. Time travel is very available, right? And that is what Wolverine is doing here, you know, as part of X-Force, you know, the mutant CIA. He's also fighting to make sure that Krakoa can be maintained. He's doing that by uh, protecting Professor Xavier, who, again, as we remember from X-Lives number one, Omega Red is somehow, we still don't know totally how, going back and, and transporting Omega Red's consciousness and ability set into individuals close to both Wolverine and these individuals that, um, that would, you know, kill Professor X, right? That would end his lineage. Okay. So it's definitely, definitely interesting. Again, as a Wolverine arc, I'd be into it. If X lives was the full picture of the event, um, I'd be down on it for the reasons I said when issue number one came out, which is it feels somewhat familiar, right? It's pulling on a lot of influences that are familiar. Like I said, um, you know, Terminator and whatnot. Uh, and it's, it's kind of just a very, very, Wolverine-centric, familiar kind of thing. Uh, but when you mix in the X-Deaths of it, which is dealing with Moira X, which has a mystery phalanx Wolverine going on, and you then picture, okay, these things are going to come together by the, the end of the 10 weeks, I definitely had a much better time reading X-Lives Wolverine number two knowing all that, okay? I was definitely more excited to dig into the work. Um, I, I, I didn't think it was, like, spectacular, but again, I liked how unstuck in time it was. I liked that we're bouncing around places. I think Joshua Kassara gets a chance to really flex on some amazing visuals, in particular when Logan is lying in bed with uh, Itsu, this woman who was his wife, who was the mother of, of Deken. Um, let me know in the comments if I'm saying that wrong. I, I oscillate on that all the time. Um, but he he's 
you know, Logan's lying there with this woman after they've post-coitus, and, and uh, Omega Red has clearly now inhabited the woman, and you got the tentacles going everywhere. You got the cool dark side, anti-life, Omega Red branding on the forehead thing. It looks good. It looks good, okay? Um, so so Joshua Kassara, I mean, he's fantastic. Again, let Kassara and Martin flex because they are great. Um, X-Life doesn't do it all the time, but when it does it, it's special. So, yeah, I mean, X-Life's Wolverine number two, I think it, it keeps the chains moving, right? It keeps the ball rolling in an event that I think is is fairly interesting, um, if not spectacular. And it, there's some interesting developments here as well. If you especially, again, like... If you're reading X Lives of Wolverine, this is a continuation of Benjamin Percy's run on X Force and on Wolverine. I mean, it is absolutely a continuation of that story. If you started here fresh, listen, you'll figure it out. But it's very much building off of of what they've done in those stories over the course of you know two and a half years now. Um, there's some cool stuff here though that they are building to and that they are integrating. For example, we see Mikhail Rasputin, brother of Colossus, who we know to be pulling a bunch of strings. In, in the Russian politics scene, you know, which is obviously topical and relevant today. Um, but we see him here kind of ghost-like enter into Omega Red while Omega Red is on. You know, X-Force had convinced Omega Red that they were going to try and give him a test trial and integrate him onto their team. Now, X-Force is doing this knowing that X-Omega Red is a mole from Vampire Nation, <laughs> Dracula's Vampire Nation, and they kill him resurrect him without memory of that, Beast does, really, when I say they, you know, Beast is the one doing all these nefarious deeds, and they also then put a uh, surveillance, they put tracking and surveillance, they basically put a wire on Omega Red um, within his Carbonadian synthesizer. Mikhail Rasputin reveals this to Omega Red, okay, he lets him, because Omega Red doesn't know, and he lets Omega Red know here in a very brief sequence, which explains what we saw back in X-Lives of Wolverine number one, where Omega Red comes to Russia, and is basically like, okay, Mikhail, let's talk, I'm going to come over to your side now, right? We see those seeds now kind of being retroactively planted um, and, and explaining why that's happening, right? It's not just love for Mother Russia or whatnot. So we see that happen. We still see some some somewhat interesting details, not the full picture about what is going on with the Cerebro Sword. I'm still mad the Cerebro Sword wasn't properly in Tennis Swords. I just got to throw that out there. <laughs> that's nothing to do with the comic. But man, that would have been that would have made sense. Um, but the Cerebro Sword is... In X-Force number one, way back, start of the Dawn X, Professor X is assassinated immediately. The Cerebro Sword is the Cerebro helmet he was wearing, got blasted to pieces, Magneto made it into a sword. Cool idea. The Cerebro Sword then got stolen and given to Mikhail Rasputin in Russia. So they have, like, fractured Cerebro technology, which apparently, apparently gives them access to a fair amount of data and a fair amount of Krakoan data. At that, okay. So Russia is using that in various measures to whatever plans they have here for the dissolution of Krakoa. It's unclear to me, at least, if the Cerebro Sword is being used already, at, like as part of the way to transport Omega Red back in time to moments relevant to Professor Rex and and when when Logan's gonna be traveling. I don't know. Like, is that their hack into connecting? Is the Cerebro Sword connected to the Cerebro? that Professor X is currently using. There's an implication there that maybe that's it. So, like, that might explain how Omega Red would know where to go back to. Um, but I, I don't think that is fully, fully made clear yet. Um, I'm seeing a comment here. Omega Red's story is going backward in each issue. <sighs> that would be cool if that stayed true to form. Like, if, if we look back at this at the end of X-Lives number five, and 
the whole story played out backwards, that'd be awesome, right? I'd be totally here for it. I don't know if that works yet. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. I love I love formalistic stuff like that. Um, but yeah, so you've got Sage and X-Force and, and Wolverine trying to prevent this timeline terrorism, um, trying to maintain the rise of Krakoa. Uh, these are big, messy ideas, I guess, is the one thing, right? Like the timeline consequences of what's happening in X-Lives of Wolverine are getting messy, um, as is predictable anytime we're talking about time travel. So at the end of this issue, you have Wolverine now faced with, with a battle with an Omega Red infected former wife of his, right? Ex, uh, she was, she's killed in different circumstances. And Wolverine has to decide, how, what do I do, right? Is he going to kill her? You know, it kind of ends with the implication that he's going to do something violent like that. Um, again, this woman is the mother of the Kent. So if Wolverine kills her in the past... Does that nullify Deken in the future, right? So you have questions like these now where we get into cause and effect and how does Marvel time actually work and what timeline are we in? Are we in a branching timeline? And all these situations where unless it's kind of the point of the story, like unless you're doing a full-on Inferno number three and here's how time travel worked for um, Omega Sentinel or you're doing a straight-up King the Conqueror story and it's really fixated on here's how time travel works. So like Loki on Disney Plus, right? There's, there's mechanics and the in the formula of time travel is important. Unless you're doing that, I don't want X Lives Wolverine to sink into that mess, you know, because it's a mess. It really is. Um, and, and I think, you know, I, X Lives and X Deaths, it's all about maintaining Krakoa. Here's the thing, right? It, as comic fans with solicits and things like... Yes, they, they often spoil an event, but, like, it's not a major spoiler here to say is going to be sustained after this event is done, right? We know in Immortal X-Men, is going to exist. So, like, big picture, mutant kind's going to move forward. They're still going to have a Krakoa. I guess the question is going to be, are certain mutants removed from the timeline? What's the impact going to be on Wolverine? He's still going to have a solo comic series, um, or a Wolverine is, right? It could be Laura's if, you know, Marvel had the had the gonads <laughs> but anyway so there's stuff that can happen there the timeline's getting messy um we'll see we'll see if that actually has any ramifications or influence i mean i, I do think there has to be stuff in x lives here that is happening that is going to have major ramifications you know it can't all just be neatly putting the timeline back in a bottle i don't think and again like this is something i talked about with x deaths but like wolverine has a history of messing up the timeline and messing it up badly he does this in age of ultron um, so it, it, in Jean Grey, I think is the one telling him here, like there are consequences to this stuff, you know, like it, you don't just get off scot-free. Wolverine is a character who acts and then deals with the consequences later. So it would be a little weird if we actually make it out of this event without damaging some characters. I, do I think one of those consequences is going to be the removal of Deken? No, because he's starring in Marauders <laughs> by Steve Orlando. So it's like, again, one of these things where it's like, well, we know things to come that sort of invalidate these possible outcomes uh nonetheless there i'm sure will be something but yeah let me know what you think about x lives wolverine number two here uh if you were on the fence about the event did this do anything to help if you were loving the event already what did you like about this definitely get them in here in the chat um and i will i'll look to some comments and look to some questions i'm seeing a comment here uh that says when is beast getting thrown in the hole He's foul. Uh, yeah, I mean, thumbs up, right? Give it all the likes. <laughs> like, clearly, clearly Beast deserves to be in the pit, which we're going to talk about in detail here with good old Sabretooth. But, I mean, no one disagrees, which is why it definitely won't happen for a while. 
Um, you know, it is Beast has been made into such a unlikable villain at this point that I think it's like it's almost too easy to just toss him into the pit. You know, it is almost too easy. Um, all right, what else do we got here with questions? Ba, 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 ba. All right, somebody asking here, didn't you call the Krakoan hell idea way back? Probably. That sounds like me. <laughs> Definitely. No, but we're, I mean, we're going to talk about uh, Sabretooth number one here. So, okay. X-Lives Wolverine number two. Listen, if you were in on this event, stay in. There's no reason to back out now. I'm still here, definitely more so for the X-Death part of things. Um, but now that I know everything's connected and, and kind of where it's going and what the mission is, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a fun thing to read week to week. I've got, I've got nothing against it. Speaking of things that I've got nothing against, uh, Sabretooth number one, writer Victor Laval, artist Leonard Kirk, colors by Rain Burrito, letters by Corey Pettit. Like I said, I was hotly anticipating Sabretooth number one. It did not disappoint. Uh, it's really, really a great launch issue. Uh, it's only a five issue mini too, which is like kind of nice, honestly, because you know, okay, we're coming in hot, we're doing the thing. And then we're getting out and we're on to something else. Um, I think that end timeline here with something that feels of very high quality is actually very exciting. So for those who don't remember, why is there a Sabretooth mini series? And I, I gotta say too, like historically, like in a vacuum, right? If it's 2017 and Marvel's like, hey, we're doing a Sabretooth five issue miniseries, I have zero interest in that. <laughs> like absolutely none. Because this is based on a lingering mystery set up in House and Powers, and because we're bringing in noted author Victor Laval. I'm very interested, okay? So it's like a total flip. Like, this is not based on Sabretooth, the character, so much as the circumstances and the creative team aligned. And this is the thing I talked about last week, where it's like, what I'm looking for in these X-Men comics, in the Krakoa era, are ideas and, and features and opportunities that feel exclusive to Krakoa. You know, Sabretooth has had miniseries or one-shots in the past, um, but they're all just kind of the same X-Men comic type stuff, right? It's Sabretooth and he's big and violent and mean, yada yada. This is not that because we have an era-specific thing heavily tied to the character of Sabretooth, which now we get to explore exclusively through Sabretooth. Now, what am I talking about? House of, six, House of X number six ended with establishing Krakoa's three laws, right? In Victor Creed, Sabretooth was served up as tribute to the third law, kill no man. For his crimes, and not discounting his history of them, certainly, Victor's exiled to a state of immortal, aware emptiness. It sounded harsh even for Sabretooth at the time, and that feeling has only grown as the Dawn of X and Reign of X have continued and no mutant has faced the same fate. The Hellions served Krakoan community service for their crimes. Nature Girl has been straight up offing dudes, uh, eco-hazard dudes in her spare time in X-Men Green. All of X-Force is badly complicit in crimes, like, for example, genocide of a people. <laughs> But it's Victor who sits alone in the pit, or so we thought, right? And, and you know, we've had stuff recently, like the very conclusion of Hellions, where you have, like, Nanny and Orphan Maker are going into exile, right? But we haven't actually seen them. We haven't actually seen that happen. Um, or we haven't actually seen what that means for them, right? So the the punishment it was extremely, extremely harsh. And as we find out in Sabretooth number one, you know, Professor X is all like, well, no prisons on Krakoa right? No prisons can be allowed. So like there's this implication that it will only ever be done to Sabretooth in some ways, which obviously we know not to be true. Um, but it's it's definitely, and, and, and one of the trickiest things about it, one of the most interesting things about this punishment for Sabretooth is this is not a character that 
I feel empathy towards. It is not a character designed to be empathetic towards. There have been moments where that has been tried, right? 2014's Axis event, written by Rick Remender, flips Sabretooth. He, it, it literally flipped, like, good guys and bad guys, right? So Sabretooth became a hero, a Wolverine-esque anti-hero. It's still Sabretooth with that character's past, but trying to do the right thing. And that lasted for a bit. That lasted for a bit. And listen, that's a thing you can explore, but it's so familiar, okay? we have Marvel has plenty of anti-heroes, right? Wolverine among them, you know? Punisher, Deadpool, these characters who kill, who have horrible pasts, who have done things that are tremendously criminal, or or that's probably a poor choice of words given this comic, um, but are, are tremendously questionable and are now trying to be heroes. They have hero books. Um, Sabretooth is not that, really. Sabretooth is horrible. <laughs> Sabretooth is unrepentantly horrible almost all the time. Uh, this is something that Victor Laval clearly gets about the character, and he states it up front. You know, there's this interesting progression in this first issue of Sabretooth saying, I know what I am, right? He's like, I know I'm a monster. I know I'm a killer, right? There's no secret about that. And the comic kind of explores that, and it does some interesting things with it. So what actually is Sabretooth number one? What are we actually dealing with here? Well, Sabretooth has been cast into exile in the pit, as he's going down, he says, I'm going to escape. I'm going to erase your whole bloodlines. He's threatening everyone. He's thrown into the pit. We literally have not seen hide nor hair of him since. Okay. And we have not gotten any details about, well, what is a Krakoan pit? <laughs> you know, like, what is that actually? Like, Krakoa is a living sentient island. So what does that mean? That there's this space that Sabretooth can fall into and be aware but have nothing to do and blah, 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 right? Whatever that is. Well, we get pretty much all that explained here. Um... Within what feels like moments to him, Sabretooth is planning his escape, okay? And he, like, wakes up, as it were, in a situation where he's already out in the woods. He's like, ha, fooled you. Like, got out of Krakow already. The X-Men come to apprehend him. He slaughters them. Slaughters them. Absolutely destroys them. He thinks he's free. Um, you know, there's a scene of him holding his heart in his, or Nightcrawler's arm with Sabretooth's heart in his hand, right? It's this brutal thing. And, like, Leonard Kirk and Rainbow they're leaning into the brutality of Sabretooth here um, in ways that I think are important for the character. This is a vicious, bloodthirsty character. You have to have some of that in their story in order to sort of show who is Victor Creed, right? And what do they think about um, what is revealed about the slaughter and not unexpectedly is it is a dreamlike sequence, okay? This is like, this is what Krakoan Pit means for Sabretooth is enacting all of these scenarios that are not real. Um, these almost like, fine, you can just live in like a fantasy pit where you get to create your own scenarios um, and and nothing comes of it. You're in prison. You know, basically you're like in a VR. <laughs> you know, you're just watching stuff happen. You're, act, you're play acting it out, but nothing's happening in the real world. You know, that is Sabretooth's prison. Um, Doug Ramsey plays a really interesting role here because he comes to Sabretooth in more of a familiar sort of lawyer-client you know, prison scene and brings his little Warlock briefcase, which is great. And he comes to Sabretooth and he says like, hey, listen, we actually don't think casting you in this exile is great. Like Krakoa, Doug, Warlock, they're actually not that into that idea. And as Doug points out here, he's like, I didn't get a vote on this, even though I'm on the council, which is obviously BS. Now, I think this is where it is actually somewhat relevant to read Sabretooth after Inferno because the, the story chronologically, 
I think realistically, you could read this basically right after House and Powers, maybe after X-Force number one, because um, there's one little thing with Black Tom. Um, so like in terms of reading order, Sabretooth chronologically fits like way long ago, <laughs> post House and Powers, but I actually think it reads better contextually after Inferno because you know about what Krakoa is going through. You know that Doug and Krakoa and Warlock are fracturing with the Quiet Council, with the leadership of Professor X and Magneto, that they've never truly been just sitting under their thumb, right? That they've been creating these no places and, and making plans of their own and infecting Krakoa with phalanxes, techno-organic stuff, so they could, you know, basically surveil what's going on with Moira and all that. That's important here. Because Doug is also taking action clearly outside of the triumvirate of Moira, Professor X, and Magneto on an ethical level, right? Just saying, like, this isn't right even for you. Um, let's give you something else. Now, there's still some mystery involved as to, like, why he needs Sabretooth's permission to sort of set this up. Um, what exactly did they set up? You know, basically when Doug leaves, Sabretooth is given sort of the memory uh, that he's in prison and sort of the freedom to then explore different fantasies about basically whatever he can think of. Again, like it's this sort of dreamlike scenario. So like initially, it's just all violence all the time. Um, it's just, I'm going to kill everyone. I'm going to do everything I ever wanted to do. And he does that and eventually that does begin to wear thin for Sabretooth. Um, and there's a really interesting moment. There's this moment in issue number one where it feels like we might be in for Sabretooth embracing a new path, right? For finding the rehabilitation prison allegedly offers. And pretty quickly, Laval strikes it dead. Um, and I think in some really, really fascinating ways. Instead of going the somewhat easy and now played out path of, well, once Victor explored all his violent tendencies, he realized there was a better way. He kind of does that, and he plays around with leading the Star Jammers. He gets these sort of what-if alternate reality scenarios, where it's Sabretooth leading the Star Jammers, conquering the galaxy, where it's um, Sabretooth basically doing a Conan thing, where he's king of the barbarians. And he kind of gets to the end of that, and he's like, you know what I actually want? I actually feel most comfortable just being the king of hell. <laughs> like, that's Sabretooth's deal. He's like, I'm going to be Mephisto, basically. I'm going to be the king of hell. I'm going to torture and maim and burn and rot, and that is my lot. And I am going to bring that vengeance upon everyone and anyone who crosses my path. Um, that's good. That's important. Again, like, Victor Creed is not a character that we are necessarily meant to or going to feel better about throughout this series. That said, the series is going to continue making us question what is this, is this prison that Professor X and company have built for him appropriate, regardless of what he's done and who he is and what he wants out of life. Is this prison the answer? You know, and that's where this comic clearly has a clear POV and one that is going to be very interesting. And, and important to continue exploring. Um, Laval's using Sabretooth's exile to examine what prison is for. You know, what is prison for? Um, it reminds me a bit of Solid and Ahmed and Christian Ward on Black Bolt. They're really good 12-issue run that came out, I think, circa 2017. Um, it's a good run for a lot of ways, but one of the things that look at, and Ahmed's another writer who's really good at this, is what are, what are we doing with prisons? Like, the criminal justice system. Like, is this justice, right? Is this actually doing this? Laval's going into that even harder, I think, than Black Bolt probably did 
at any particular point in time um, with data pages where it's all it's doing is just sort of questioning who is prison for, why do we have them, what are they doing, um, what is the goal, these sorts of questions that are very pertinent and, and very important to ask. You know, it definitely, it brings to mind, you know, one of one of Laval's greatest gifts, and, and Dr. Anna Papar put this really well in a good review on Comics XF, is Laval excels at excavating the racism underpinning popular mythology. This is expertly stated, and it's it's Victor Laval's, I think, one of his greatest gifts. I think the example that I go to is the Ballad of Black Tom. Um, it's a, a short, you know, no, maybe novella. I don't know if you call it a novel, um, but it is playing off of H.P. Lovecraft's uh, something at Red Hook. I forget exactly what it is. Um, and it is basically saying H.P. Lovecraft, big racist, right? Notorious racist. Not just like, oh, of the time. Like, no, he was, he was like racist upon racist for the time. Um, the Red Hook story is one that stands out where you can see like, oh yeah, like this is, this is the most, one of the most influential, you know, uh, acclaimed supernatural horror writers of all time. Um, but obviously they have these really gross tendencies. Laval takes that, looks at that popular mythology, does his own spin on it, right? Sort of reintegrates, okay, now let's, let's still have a supernatural horror story, but let's put the racial elements on top. Let's, let's sort of reclaim that and reimagine what that can be. Um, Sabretooth isn't going to be that exactly, right? Because Sabretooth is a white guy, right? Like Sabretooth is not a, a person of color, a minority, um, you know, mutant, right? But, but the mutant metaphor as it stands in some ways allows to sort of operate as a stand-in for that. It's not the same thing. It never should be equated and we shouldn't be comparing and contrasting, but that's what the mutant metaphor does, right? It, it, for a lot of groups, it allows them to sort of see themselves as ostracized, right? And there are varying degrees of that, that are effective and that are correct, and that's a large conversation. Um, but this is Laval's gift, right? This is this is what the author does in a lot of their really well-known works. Um, I've been listening to The Changeling on audiobook approaching this. Uh, highly recommend the writing of Victor Laval. I would say my entry point and what I would recommend is um, The Destroyer comics that came out via Boom Studios, which is a African-American take on... Frankenstein, and uh, and then also the the Ballad of Black Tom, I think is excellent. And again, it's not too dense. I would highly, highly recommend that. But also read the Lovecraft, okay? Read the Lovecraft with it. That helped me a lot, personally, just to see, like, okay, what are we actually bouncing off of here to reclaim this thing? Um, so again, Sabretooth is not going to be exactly that, but, like, I knew going into this, okay, this is going to reflect on what prison is, um, and it does so very clearly. It does so with clear-eyed focus um, in asking some interesting challenging conversations. Uh, and I think one of the best things you can do in superhero comics, a lot of times is ask questions that you don't expect from a superhero comic. Um, and don't provide easy answers, right? Superhero comics that historically are based around easy morality, a lot of it, right? And it's part of what Stanley and Jack and, and Steve Ditko made so appealing about Marvel in the sixties was reducing the easiness of the morality, adding more nuance, adding more gray to that, okay? And I think Sabretooth is going to do that now in its modern way in 2022. Um, so there's there's gonna be a lot more to say about that. Um, I, I would say, again, like, it's gonna open interesting questions. Uh, for me, you know, one thing that, that definitely I was thinking of a lot as I was reading about these issues about criminal justice and the reform that's needed, uh, I was thinking about a lot about Ava DuVernay's 13, uh, a documentary that you could, I think, probably still watch on Netflix, if you have access to that, uh, that is highly recommended as well. But purely in comics terms, I mean, yeah, Sabretooth is, is excellent. It's asking good questions. It's again, just on a visceral, 
superhero level doing big action stuff. It's again, like you have Sabretooth in a Corsair suit leading the Starjammers. There's fun stuff here too. You know, it's not just dark and like there's a playfulness to this as well. And then there's also, also an amazing twist. Okay. There's a big twist here at the very end of this, which is five mutants suddenly showing up in Sabretooth's hell but out of his control, okay? And I don't even know if I said this at the start here. If you're here on Casual Kirko and it's your first time, apologies. If it's not, you know the deal. This is spoiler-laden conversation. I'm talking about the comics that I have read. We're going to talk about them in full detail, okay? Five mutants show up out of nowhere. This appears to be real. This doesn't appear to be part of Sabretooth's fantasy. He's like, I didn't do this, right? These five mutants drop into his hell that he's created, um, and they are totally unexpected totally unexpected. Madison Jeffries, Oya, aka ID, Necra, Melter, and Third Eye, who I believe is a new character. I've, I've no familiarity with Third Eye. I looked it up. I couldn't find a, a Third Eye. Um, well, I could find Third Eyes, but not this one. <laughs> and uh, so Madison Jeffries, I have probably the... Madison Jeffries and Oya I have the most familiarity with. Okay, Madison Jeffries is a character who actually debuted like way back in John Byrne's Alpha Flight in the 1980s. And uh, long story short, good with machines. <laughs> a mutant who's real good with machines uh, to the point that he fell in love with danger. Uh, this is in X Club, okay? This is, I think, a 2011, maybe 2010 series. It's written circa the Utopia era when the X-Men have an island nation off the coast of San Francisco. Uh, it's a Cy Spurrier written joint, X Club. And it's got a bunch of Dr. Nemesis in it. It's got Madison Jeffries and Danger in the relationship. If you have one read that you can go to to sort of be like, who is this character? What do I need to know? Um, check out Madison Jeffries in X Club. It's a four-issue mini, again, written by Cy Spurrier. But again, like, good with machines, fell in love, had some sort of romance with Danger. Danger is the sentient Danger Room technology who was debuted in the uh, Astonishing X-Men run by Joss Whedon and John Cassidy. Okay, um, but is very much a artificial intelligence um, machine sort of thing. And Madison Jeffries and, and this individual have a relationship. We have not seen Danger in this era. Danger is not a standard mutant. Whether Danger is a mutant or not, it could be classified such way, is a debate, I suppose. We have not seen Danger. We have not seen Madison Jeffries. Suddenly, here's Madison Jeffries dropping in to Krakoan exile hell. Okay, what happened there? That's an interesting story. I definitely want to know more. It's not that hard to see Madison Jeffries taking issue with Krakoa's maybe lack of acceptance of danger, of lashing out um, at a humanity that was maybe manipulating danger in some way, right? There's a lot of directions that story could go, but it's not hard to see. Oya is interesting as well, okay? Um, I, I would say if you're looking for a read for this character, I would push you to, it's definitely a Jason Aaron favorite, um, a, a key character in Schism, uh, but I would actually go straight to like Wolverine and the X-Men. Um, ID establishes a, a romance, a friendship of sorts with Brew, uh, who's obviously a really, really fun character, um, and is just one of these young mutants. Now, Oya is probably the, not necessarily the most surprising, but definitely the most surprising in terms of like who would get exiled on Krakoa character, because she is generally like pretty good. <laughs> like, like not a villain, right, of sorts. Um, so what is the story there? What is she doing there? Again, these are all really, really compelling stories. Then we have Necra, who 
has been around since the 70s. I think it's a Steve Gerber creation. It has a really complicated and messy 1970s um, origin that I, I won't even go into because I can't. Um, but Necro, that's a, that's a deep, deep cut. Okay, that is a deep pull. And then Melter, also that. Okay, there's a Melter that is more familiar in Marvel history who's like a Masters of Evil villain of like Iron Man. What's his deal? He melts stuff, right? He's real obvious. He's like, um, uh, who's Captain Cold's buddy? Heatwave, is it? Uh, the, the, the hot guy, the fire guy from Flash's rogues gallery. Basically that. That's not this Melter. That Melter's not a mutant. This Melter is a mutant, but is primarily associated with, like, um, I think he's in the Avengers Undercover books, and, like, basically, like, a kid master of evil. Okay? Um, so, Mel this Melter seems to be landing in a Krakoan hell prison isn't the wildest thing, but just having this character around is surprising. And then, like I said, Third Eye, I don't think we know anything about, um, because I, I think it's a brand new character. <laughs> so, any new mutant showing up at all uh, was surprising. I mean, I thought, you know, if we were going to see anyone, I thought it'd be Nanny and Orphan Maker, because we saw they were tossed into the pit, right? Um, there was possibility of, like, Toad. There's some stuff that happened with Toad, right, from Trial of Magneto. But, um, uh, you know, these five characters were a total shock. It's a great twist. It was, it added something totally unexpected and some mystery to this issue. This issue has it all. Definitely, if you haven't read Sabertooth number one, check it out. Um, if this spoiled it for you, <laughs> sorry, definitely read the rest of the series. Uh, it's going to be worth it. It's going to be good. And it's the best launch issue since Circuit number one. So I've been into it. I want to hear what you all think. Definitely leave your comments here uh, if you have questions of your own. Interesting question here from Warren. Would Danger be on the side of Orcus Omega AI or maybe Doug's secret weapon? I mean, yeah, like that's why Danger would be so interesting in this era because now like we clearly have this setup as established by Hickman in Inferno of it's mutants versus AI, right? That is the real war here. That is the real battle. Where does Danger fall on that side, right? Because Danger is part of AI but has long had these connections with mutant kind. Warlock is in an interesting package, right? So does Danger maybe, yeah, maybe fall in this unexpected third party as led by Doug Krakoa and Warlock, Bay the Blood Moon, right? They start building allies, you know, could could Danger be a part of that group? I would love to see it. I, would, I think that would be a great fit. Um, I, I have to think that Madison Jeffrey's story is going to involve Danger in some capacity. It would be surprising to me if it didn't. Um, but again, we will see, and that's part of why this, this series is going to be so exciting. Uh, question here from Cole in the Super Chat. Thanks for your support, Cole. The question is, will they ever bring Morph back? <laughs> I had I have so much affinity for Morph uh, because of the X-Men 90s animated series. Uh, I was definitely shocked when I started reading X-Men comics to realize, like, oh, Morph's not a anything. <laughs> like, Morph, <laughs> Morph's not in comics at all. Uh, Morph debuts, I think, actually in Age of Apocalypse as, like, kind of a different-ish version, um, and then shows up in one of my favorite early 2000s runs, Exiles, which I, I really, really enjoyed. Um, speaking of early 2000s favorite runs, Ecstatics. Come back today with the excellent, right? But, uh, but yeah, will they bring Morph back? I mean, I don't, I don't know who 616 Morph is, I guess, actually, now that I think about it, right? I only kind of know these alternate reality versions. Um, uh, they should. They should bring a 6 Who is 616 Morph um, if they are a mutant? Let's get some Morph action on this island. Uh, there's no reason not to. You got X-Men 90s animated series coming back on Disney+. Plus. You got a, a House of X 
version in comics that's going to be coming out, written by Steve Fox. Yes, it's time to bring Morph back. I completely, completely agree. I am here for it. All right, what other questions we got? Um, let's see. The question is, does Charles and Mags remember they fought with Nimrod and Omega? Uh, this question is referencing Inferno number four, where Professor X and Magneto had that all-out throwdown with Nimrod and Omega Sentinel, um, in which they both died. Uh, they were then brought back by Emma. Would they remember this fight? That is an interesting question. Well, the first thought would be no, because it happened and presumably the backups happened previously. Now, the counter to that would be, well, Professor X is literally wearing a Cerebra helmet while it's happening. So, like, is he actually capturing everything that happens to him in sort of a permanent backup? Like, can Professor X lose memories because of the way Cerebra works? I don't know. I don't know if he's just perpetually backing up his own person in a way that he can uniquely do for himself because it's him versus anyone else. Um, I also don't know... I mean, I guess the follow-up question is, like, well, does it matter? Right? Does it matter if they fought with Omega Sentinel and Nimrod, and I guess actually it kind of does, because that would de that more clearly declares who their antagonists and the threats are, in some ways. In some ways, because they already knew Omega Sentinel and Nimrod were with Orcus, but they see them actually kill all the Orcus humans, and, and obviously just give the sense of like, okay, that's not the threat. So actually, yes, that does solidify who the threat is. It seems like a possibility that, that Marvel could get away with, or the X-Men could get away with by saying, well, Professor X backed that up so he remembers. That feels like a possibility, um, but def, I would say it's still too TBD. Still TBD um, in terms of officially declaring that. I mean, yeah, I'm seeing here from Xavier, it was the whole point that they would not remember. Um, I mean, I don't think it was the whole point <laughs> of that issue, uh, but it certainly, it, it is a possibility that they could. I think the way typically that this has been written in X-Men comics is when individuals die, they do not remember, you know, the last few hours of their life or whatever it is um, because the Cerebro backup wasn't officially running, <laughs> you know, at the time. So they lose those hours. Uh, Cole jumps in here to say, wouldn't the Eldritch Orchard back up those memories? Guys, we talked about this last week, I want to say. My understanding of the Eldritch Orchard is like nil. <laughs> it is. We have a magical garden of mutant memory. It could be backing up absolutely everything. There could possibly be no more mutant memory loss, but that's not what we've seen so far in comics. So will that be the impact of Trial of Magneto, that there's no more mutant memory loss if they die? Um, it could be, but that has not actually been done, and that has not been declared or utilized in any story yet. Uh, so I think it's a good question. It's really something that I think we need more clarity on um, because there's there's a temptation here, I think, early. And I, I don't think this will actually happen, but there's a temptation to just, like, uh, maybe we just don't ever touch Trial of Magneto, but it just happened and it did a lot of big stuff. Um, the timing of Trial of Magneto was so weird. Uh, that, that story, you know, is doing this big thing. It's dropping things like Scarlet Witch's Magical Memory Garden for mutants, but then it's coming out at the same time as Inferno, so it kind of gets lost in the shuffle. It's kind of not the main thing that everything's playing off. It's a weird one. It's a weird one. I do think it'll come back. I do think we'll play with it um, and and actually get some answers, hopefully. Hopefully, because that's too big a thing to drop in there and just be like, well, it can bring back Thunderbird. We'll do that. But otherwise, no one touched the Magical Memory Garden <laughs> because it's too messy and complicated and we don't want to deal with it. Um, that, that doesn't feel great, right? So, all right. 
Let's see. Uh, Never Here asks, how do you think what's happening in Devil's Reign with Kingpin is going to tie over into the X-World? Well, we kind of know from Devil's Reign X-Men, uh, the, the miniseries that kicked off. We saw the first issue, which is very much an extension of Jerry Duggan written X-Men. Um, it is uh, Kingpin sends, um, who is it, U.S. agent, some of the Thunderbolts over to the X-Men's treehouse. Um, to basically, basically, he's like, well, we can't just straight up like fight and arrest them like we're doing with the New York City heroes right now. Um, it, Kingpin has declared, you know, all, all vigilantes are outlaws in New York City. He's the mayor. Um, we're going to arrest them, yada, yada. Uh, he's like, we can't do that with X-Men because it's like an international incident, but we can't just ask them to move. They can't have the treehouse here anymore. Um, but that falls apart, okay, because Emma is good at what she does, and she's Emma Frost. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, is there going to be more? Yeah, I mean, there's two more issues in that run, I think. So, like, Kingpin's going to continue to try to kick mutants out of... New York City. Um, I, I don't expect it'll escalate too much beyond the confines of Devil's Reign, you know? Um, I, I don't expect it'll be much more than the X-Men doing these sort of political back and forths with, with Kingpin and the Thunderbolts, you know? And, it, like, they're not actually gonna escalate to Krakoan War over the Kingpin's action in New York City. I don't expect. Um, but keep reading that series to find out. I mean, it, it's good. Like, it's good stuff. you got Phil Noto on art. Um, I've been liking the Duggan X-Men more Lately, in Devil's Reign, X-Men definitely was a part of that. You know, I'm seeing the comment here. Hopefully, Sabretooth truly cuts loose and gets his revenge. <sighs> Who here is rooting for Sabretooth to get loose and just go wild? <laughs> On Krakoa. Because I feel like that's not an atypical response. Um, and it is kind of a thing now where, you know, that's been building for a while. And... I think a lot of fans, a lot of readers, there's a lot of people on Krakoa that kind of have it coming, right? That kind of have it coming. And like Inferno kind of gave it to Professor X and Magneto, right? And Moira is now on the run and dying and everything's going wrong, right? Um, but, you know, Beast has it coming. Um, the rest of the Quiet Council, they're not above <laughs> criticism here and Sabretooth's wrath. Uh, who, who, who does Sabretooth kill last? Kate, I guess, because she wasn't part of the Quiet Council when that when that decision was made. Um, who did, who does his vengeance leave for last? Uh, Mystique, I feel like could go either way because they have a history. They had romantic ties for a while. I think they had a kid <laughs> at one point, which is wild. Um, uh, but also, she's kind of she didn't have his back, and they were on the mission together. We killed those people, so I I don't know. Yeah, Kate's definitely last. <laughs> That's all I know. Uh, Dove here asks, how do you feel about Marvel insinuating that the mutants are deviants in this summer's upcoming event, Judgment Day? Yeah. So, I am actually fairly excited for Judgment Day. Um, Marvel events can go a few ways. Generally, my take is if they are coming out of an event, or if they are coming out of a series by a creator that I like and has been doing a good job on that series, I'm probably fairly excited about the event and, and have optimism about it, right? Devil's Reign's a good example. The Chip Zdarsky and Marco Cicchetto run on, on Daredevil has been awesome. Uh, so Devil's Reign, I'm like, yes, this will probably be good. It's by these two creators who are good. Um, it's been okay so far. You know, I don't love it, but it's fine. Um, Judgment Day is going to be Kieran Gillen writing. Kieran Gillen's writing the awesome Eternal series right now. He's going to be writing Immortal X-Men, and it's going to have some Avengers-y stuff as well, um, really dealing with the Eternals' feelings, <laughs> apparently, about 
whether or not the mutants are basically deviants, right? In the Eternals, they they hunt and kill deviants. Um, many of them do, right? And that's something that's being explored in this Eternals run. I, I am initially and naturally resistant to these types of big swings about how the Marvel cosmology of like where heroes come from ties back to more Eternals and Celestial stuff. You know, so the, the most recent example would be in Jason Aaron and Ed McGuinness's Avengers in the first arc in, in, in a run that has gone on to be one of my least favorites, <laughs> I will say. Um, in the first arc, they're basically like, hey, the Avengers and the fact that there are superheroes on this Earth, why they pop up so often is because a Celestial died here and puked in your water. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's almost entirely true. Um, and I don't love that. <laughs> it's not my favorite thing that's been done. I mean, I kind of like the accident of it almost, but, you know, kind of trying to be like, okay, Celestials, like they didn't plan for this. They just, it's an accident. Like it's a freakish thing that happened, um, but you're tied to Celestials now. Uh, I don't know. I don't need it. It doesn't add a lot to me, to the Marvel cosmology and sort of the superhero universe that I've I've enjoyed so much of. Uh, there's the potential with Judgment Day to fall into similar traps. Now, I think Gillen's too smart for that and has played with the idea and the, and the mythology here too much to really fall into that. So if we're going to say that mutant kind are actually deviants or an offshoot of deviants from Eternals, oh, that's a tricky one. That's a tricky one. I, I don't know that I like it. I... I I am definitely, you know, my my natural inclination is to be resistant to that because it's change, and, and we always fear change, right? All kinds of change. Um, I don't think it adds a lot. I mean, this is the thing about Kirby's Eternals that is so tricky is Kirby shows up in the late 1970s and is like, hey, the Marvel Universe is built on three, you know, uh, factions of, of humanity. There's humans kind that we know and understand. There's Eternals and there's Deviants. This is 17 years into the Marvel Universe existing where we've never heard about these things before. You know, and Kirby shows up and he's just doing his own thing. He's doing his Kirby thing, and it's great in some places, and it's really puts me to sleep in others, right, um, that run. But now, years and years and years and decades later, trying to sort of reintegrate and map it because the Eternals are relevant for the first time ever in the Marvel Cinematic Universe... Uh, that's potentially dangerous. That's potentially a thing that I don't want to see happen. I mean, I think realistically, like, yeah, I mean, I'm seeing here from Cole in the comments, I hate it, thanks. Like, <laughs> yeah, I kind of agree. It might be a thing that they tease out there and say, oh, we think they're deviants, and then actually that's proven to be not true. That would be fine. I just kind of don't love messing with where mutants come from um, in these ways because it just kind of raises really large questions that Marvel is not situated to answer <laughs> and that none of these series are ever really about, you know? I mean, in some ways it makes sense, right? The Deviants are, none of them are the same. Um, could there be an offshoot of Deviants where there are, that becomes what we now know as humans with the X gene mutants? Like, yeah, you could do that. I just don't know what it adds, I guess. I guess I just kind of, I just don't know what it adds. And, um, and that's the biggest challenge. I mean, I, I guess too, like, I don't remember exactly. I didn't follow these promos super closely yet because I haven't done a dig in it, but I think maybe that quote was from Druig and Druig's a lying liar who lies. 
<laughs> so if that's who it's from, then it's also like, all right, we're, I'm probably having this entire conversation about something that is not the intent of the book. Um, that said, that said, I'm, I'm looking forward to Judgment Day. I, I'm, opti- I'm very optimistic about Kieran Gillen on Immortal X-Men. Judgment Day should be interesting because Eternals has been very good. So yeah, I mean, I'm here for it. It makes sense. It makes sense that the Eternals and now the Immortal X-Men on Krakow would come into conflict. It makes sense. Um, so, you know, events are a dangerous breed, but uh, but I think this one could work. All right, what other, what other questions we got here? I want Sabretooth to be smart like he was when he was a prisoner in the mansion going through rehab when he is a mindless animal. It's not as scary. You know, I was thinking about that a little bit too with this first issue where, um, and you get it a little bit, there's this faction of, or this this gathering of various versions of, of Sabretooth. You have like a captain and the kid and the mindless animal. Um, so Laval's playing with it a little bit. It seemed, he seems to understand that. But we have had some really interesting takes on Sabretooth where he's extremely intelligent. Um, think about like Rick Remender's um, Uncanny X-Force, you know, right? Like that is a master planner kind of Sabretooth. So yeah, I, I think that's, that's an element that I definitely like more than the Savage Lackey, right? Um, of, of Mr. Sinister's uh, Marauders, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm here for it as well. Let's see. Do I think mutants are already living on Krakoa in the MCU? No, <laughs> I do not. Uh, I do not think that will be how mutants are introduced to the Marvel Universe on a secret island no one has ever been to before, um, although I wouldn't hate it. <laughs> I don't think I'd hate it. Uh, no, I, I kind of hate it. I kind of hate it. Um, that's the Inhumans thing. All right, let's see. Anything else? Yeah, okay, cool. All right, so last thing. Last thing. Get any more questions if you got them, and I will tackle what I can. And thanks for the good ones so far today. It's been fun to discuss. Uh, the Excellent came out. The Excellent number one. It is not just a one-shot, as I feared. It appears to be... Uh, if not an ongoing, maybe it's at least going to get its five issues, written by Peter Milligan, art by the Allreds, Mike and Laura, letters by Nate uh, Picos, wrote uh, a really good book on comic lettering recently that everybody should check out if you are interested in the subject matter. Um, okay, here's here's the thing. I love Ecstatics. Uh, it's one of my favorite Marvel comics of, I guess, all time, but definitely of the early 2000s. Uh, Ecstatics, that is by Peter Milligan and the Allreds, Okay. Um, it's awesome. It's so good. It, it takes X-Force <laughs> and it, in the pages of X-Force, which is the big beat em up, kill people mutant book. And it turns it into this mutant book about quest for fame and fame hungry individuals and kind of just awful people at times. Um, they're not a superhero team in any of the traditional sense. They're basically a reality TV show. It's very much reflective of what pop culture was like in the early 2000s and that hunger for fame on reality TV, um, but it's so much more. It does a lot more than that. It's just really smart, and it has a lot of cultural commentary and critiques that are very interesting. It does stuff that no other X-Men book is even approaching doing. Um, if you have not read Ecstatics, uh, it is very worth going back to. It's why I love Dupe so much, okay? When I talk about Dupe being so awesome on here and make jokes about Dupe, like, that's where it comes from, right? That, that book, plus that was my introduction to Michael Ritz's art. Um, I love it. It's so good. One of, one of the best visual styles, I think in um in comics this team came back together i think it was in 2020 with giant size ecstatics and uh it was a reunion one shot um they followed up the end of of ecstatics and they did kind of a here's where they are now type story i was not super into it honestly um it was it was 
Like, okay, let them have their fun, um, but it, it didn't do a lot. The Excellent is very much a follow-up to that story. Okay, so if you have not read Ecstatics, then much later the Giant Size Ecstatics one-shot, um, The Excellent's probably going to be very confusing. I mean, here's the other thing about The Excellent. It is not in any way tied to Krakoa, okay? So if you are here for the Krakoa era of X-Men, um, The Excellent makes no reference of it that I, that I noticed. Um, it appears to be totally devoid <laughs> of being stuck in continuity. They're just doing their thing, okay? Um, a fame-obsessed teen is just as relevant now as it was 20 years ago, and that is what the Excellent is playing with. You know, it is playing with new attempts to gather fame through social, through TikTok, etc., and sort of comparing and contrasting with the traditional TV model that the team was utilizing back in the early 2000s. That's fine and could lead to some interesting commentary. Um, and again, it's relevant. I, I think the challenge for me is... I love that original run. So I'll keep checking this out, I suppose. It's harmless enough, I guess. Um, but it reminds me again that it's often good for stories to have endings. <laughs> like, it is usually a good thing if stories do end. And and as attuned as Milligan and company are, and may be to the cultural pressures to stay relevant, um, how about avoiding the temptation to trade on nostalgia by rebooting everything? Like, that is a cultural critique that one could posit towards media today, that there is this horribly, horribly over fixation on rebooting everything on, you know, if something ends on season three, there's a Twitter campaign to save the show on Netflix for season four, <clears throat> Daredevil, right? So like we see this with everything now. Um, and on one hand, it's like, all right, Milligan and Oliver want to come back in this playground that was so great the first time around and they want to get paid to do it. Great. Do it. I I've got nothing against that. Um, I'm just not real hyped for it, and I, I guess, too, it's just like it doesn't fit with anything else going on um, in X-Men, which is fine. Like, Ecstatics doesn't necessarily need that. You know, Wolverine showing up is always more of a, a joke about the cameo power than anything. Um, I don't know. I just, this first issue did not, did not do it for me. It, it mostly just made me want to go reread the original series and just see kind of how I felt about it now. Like, that was mostly what this does. And if that's the main impact, it has great. Like, more, I hope more people go and read Ecstatics and, uh, and fall in love with Dupe. Um, but the, the sort of revival stuff around these has not struck me or really hooked me, despite my love for the original. So I'm curious what people think about it. If you're an Ecstatics fan, you know, are you super hyped for the excellent? But definitely for me, it didn't. Um, I'm not that hyped for it. I don't know how much more I'm going to talk about it unless something major happens. Um, so, all right. Let's, uh, let's see what final questions we have here, but otherwise, I think we're about that time. Let's hear it. <sighs> Any good weird mojo world stories worth reading? Okay. Weird mojo world stories. Um, there is, it was X-Men Black. It was written by Scott Aukerman, who uh, is a comedian, does a bunch of comedy bang bang, earwolf podcast stuff. Um, it's a mojo solo. I think it's called X-Men Black Mojo. Um, it's good. <laughs> it's surprisingly good. I would recommend X-Men Black Mojo if you haven't read it. Uh, it is weird, but not in the way you expect, um, which is what makes it weird. Uh, other stuff, um, I mean, you got to do the Claremont and Arthur Adams giant mojo world annuals uh off the top of my head Ooh. i mean it's gonna be mid-80s stuff uh what is it like i'm gonna guess new mutants annuals number two 
That's my guess. I could be way off on that. Um, that does some strange, like, I think that's when the ex-babies happen too. <laughs> the team gets turned into babies and also they're in Mojo World. It is a massive, dense cluster, but Art Adams on art is so good that it's actually worth checking out. Um, those would be the top two wrecks that immediately come to mind. There was also in X-Men Blue and Gold, which are not go-to wrecks of mine, there was a Mojo World crossover that I think those series maybe started with in the X in the Marvel Legacy era um, that I don't remember hating. <laughs> so I guess that's okay. Uh, let's see. We see in the comments here, the Spider-Ham Mini had a good Mojo bit in it. Okay, good. There you go. That sounds appropriate. Yeah, something like a Spider-Ham that is playful and joking is a great fit for Mojo World. There's definitely very little Mojo World taken seriously that I've ever been tremendously invested in. I think X-Factor did an okay job with that, the Lee Williams written stuff. Um, but generally, generally, I'm not a huge Mojo fan. Um, it's a concept that has kind of lived out its, its usefulness and purpose, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, all right, so what other questions do we have? Do, do, do. Okay. I think that does it. Good questions today. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for, for listening. Again, I'm Dave. You can find all my stuff at Comic Book Herald, uh, comicbookherald.com, all sorts of good writing. If you want to see all of the X-Men comics in chronological order, I have reading orders for the entire Krakow era. I do it every week when the new comics come out. I update where they fit. Uh, you can find those links in the show notes, but of course, just go over to comicbookherald.com and you'll find it. <laughs> Would you like a return of the X-Babies? <clears throat> Not really. <laughs> I mean, I don't think I really would. But if like, if like Al Ewing was doing it, you know, it'd be like, okay, maybe, maybe there's a good reason for this. Uh, good question. Good question. If Al Ewing declares Return of the X-Babies in X-Men Red, I mean, there's no chance I'm not reading that issue. So I don't think I want it to happen, but I could potentially buy in very quickly. At just how weird and funny that could be. Um, so, all right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Find me also at comicbookherald.com. Uh, if you like the channel, please like, subscribe, comment. All that good stuff helps me out a great deal. And as always, enjoy the comics. <laughs>